Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports on a global scale. We're celebrating our 10th year on the air this week. Ten years ago, we launched Sports Business Radio been a great 10 years fun ride so far look forward to many more years to come we've got a great show coming up today keith foreman the co-founder of sports business radio will join me to take a trip down memory lane and reminisce about our favorite moments from the last 10 years the biggest changes to the sports business landscape over the past 10 years and what sports business stories will make headlines in the coming decade we'll try and figure that out keith foreman on the show rand gatlin Investigative reporter with Yahoo Sports will discuss the landmark ruling by the National Labor Relations Board with Northwestern University student athletes. What does it mean and what's the timeline for everything to play out? We'll discuss that with Rand Gatlin on today's show. And then Darren Heitner, sports and entertainment lawyer. He covers sports business for Forbes.com. He's the author of the new book, How to Play the Game. It's a book that will be a terrific resource for those trying to navigate the sports business space. We'll also talk to Darren about Mark Cuban's recent comments about the decline of the NFL in the next decade. How will that play out? What do we think? We'll talk about that with Darren Heitner. You can visit the Sports Business Radio blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. You can find our best interviews over the last 10 years. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can become our Facebook friend or follow me on Twitter. I'm at SB Radio. Executive producer Brian Griggs joins me now. Griggs, thank you so much for your contributions to Sports Business Radio over the years. I can't believe it's been 10 years. You know, I can't believe it. I came on, I think, what, halfway through that, I don't know, five or six years ago, I think. Um, but uh, it's been a great run with my myself. I've enjoyed it and obviously working with you. But, yeah, congrats on 10 years. I mean, that is... Uh, you know, it's not it's not easy to do that in, in this radio industry, so it's cool to have a show that's been going strong and uh, had some awesome interviews over the years. I'm looking forward to how we move forward. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, I look back, and one of the reasons Keith Foreman and I started the show is we felt like there was a smarter twist to sports radio, a higher, more intelligent listener out there, and we've really tried to reach that audience and, and do so in a way that, you know, we're not just talking about stock reports and talking over people's head. And I think what's fascinating, Griggs, is that most people really find it interesting to see the path that a Mark Cuban or a David Stern or a Jack Nicholas or Sugar Ray Leonard takes in their path to success, not only on the field of play, but, you know, in the business boardroom as well. So it's been fun to interview a lot of those people. I can honestly say 10 years ago, I had a bucket list of people that I wanted to interview on this show. And over the last 10 years, I've gotten to interview most of those people. So that's a thrill for me because I like to find out what makes people tick and how they got to be where they are. And uh, I'm fascinated by that. I was a psych minor in college. so I'm just interested in people. And uh, it's been fun and, and really interesting for me and educational for me to interview those people. So hopefully it's been educational for our audience as well. 
No, I agree, and I think there's so much more to sports than just the highlights we see on TV. It's the you know how that arena got there, and who bought the team, and who owns the team, and, and you know front offices of these places, and that's what make this show has made this show so interesting. Just to, on my listening, you know, and working with it is because you find out this stuff about uh, you just don't hear about all this stuff, and you don't you don't get to talk to David Stern like we get to talk to him for 15 minutes of solid gold interviews, and you know it's uh, that's what's making made this show work, and it continues to make it work is just learning and hearing all the stuff behind the scenes that no one else knows. Well, and you look at the story this week with uh, Northwestern and the NLRB. I mean, that's right in our wheelhouse. That's a story that we'll cover. We'll dig into that. We've actually been talking about that story with Rand Gatlin for probably the last five years, kind of anticipating this day and that the college landscape was going to change drastically. And there's probably still a lot more change to come. But, you know, it's good for us to try and uh, peel back the curtain to let our audience see what's really going on. And let's talk to people like Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, or Bill Hancock, the uh, head of what was the BCS and is now the college football playoff. So, you know, we've always tried to go to the source of the information. We do talk to other reporters on this show like we will this week. But as much as we can, we try and track down the people who are the source of the information, whether it's an owner making a trade. I remember Robert Sarver acquired Shaquille O'Neal for his Phoenix Suns. So instead of calling you know, a reporter, we got Robert Sarver on the show and said, why did you make that trade? And And to me, that's a perfect example of Let's try and go to the source. We've got great relationships on the show. One of the things I'm most proud of is the fact that if we have someone on the show like a David Stern, they feel respected and they feel like we've asked them intelligent questions. So they come on the show multiple times. That's the sign of, you know, a good show and one that's respected in the industry. And and that makes me feel very good. Yep. And, uh, the Rand Gedlin interview that's on uh, the show this week is just phenomenal. And it's like 23 minutes of. Amazing information. Rand kills it, and he's all over it. And his Twitter, when the story broke and came down, it's like he was like a little kid in a candy store. You could tell he was just so excited about this and getting information out to people and how it's going to change the landscape for college uh, athletics in the future. It's it's a great interview, and the whole show is really awesome this week for sure. Thank you. Uh, speaking of the college athletic landscape, my bracket for March Madness is busted. I oh, yeah. <laughs> had Virginia and Arizona in the finals. I went with two undervalued one seeds. I kind of went with, you know what, everyone's going with Michigan State and Florida and Louisville. I'm going to go against the grain because that's the only way I'm going to win this thing. And I went all or nothing, and Griggs, I'm sitting here with nothing right now. <laughs> Same here, man. I was That first Dayton game was like, okay, there we go, goodbye. And it just went downhill from there. I don't know how anybody can ever get a perfect bracket. It's the most unpredictable sporting event in the world, and it continues to uh, be exciting and fun. Every game is just always fun. But yeah, bracket was done uh, a couple weeks ago. Well, our friends uh, at uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the name. Uh, one of the people I follow on Twitter out there, R.J. Bell. There it is. Yes, uh, 10.7 trillion to one that someone would have a perfect bracket. Just to this point, forget about the whole tournament. Just to this point, and would have picked the final four teams that we have uh, in there. What is it? Kentucky, Wisconsin, Yukon, and Florida. 10.7 trillion to one. So if anyone had that, uh, I want to take them to Vegas. Or uh, it's Nostradamus. Yeah, I don't think anybody probably had Yukon or Kentucky in the final four. At least I know I didn't. But you never know. But I, I doubt. I mean, that is ridiculous. I mean, you can win Powerball like three times in that chance. You know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the guy who looks like Nostradamus right now, I tweeted this out yesterday was the guy who is 22 years old 
And right before round one of the SEC tournament, he went and paid $80 to get a tattoo. University of Kentucky 2014 NCAA basketball champions. And everyone's like, wow, Kentucky, this just isn't their year. Well, right now they're in the final four and that guy's tattoo might actually be accurate when it's all said and done. How crazy is that? I mean, they got a great coach. So, you know, sometimes coach, uh, especially in college basketball, can play a role in it. And uh, he's been there before. It'll be interesting, but I would not go get a tattoo. (laughs) Even if my team was undefeated, I probably wouldn't do that. Who do you want to see in the final? You know, um, I think UConn was exciting. Uh, they, had, you know, it was fun seeing them in Madison Square, and it was a good crowd. So I think it'd be cool to see them go, just because I think it would be kind of surprising for everybody. So I'm going with UConn. You know, I like all four of the teams remaining. I'm sentimentally pulling for Bo Ryan. This is his first trip to the Final Four. Uh, he lost both of his parents in the last year. He was very emotional after. Uh, Wisconsin's victory over Arizona to get to the Final Four. You know, I just like him. He's so well-respected, not only by his players, by the fans, by his fellow coaches. I think it would be neat to see Bo Ryan break through and uh, and get the victory. And, you know, you look at that team, and it just it's a scrappy team. And that's kind of Wisconsin against Kentucky. You know, you've got Kentucky has – Multiple first round draft picks on their team. You know, they're built on the one and done style. And you look at Wisconsin, those are kids that are going to school for three or four years. And it's more of a team concept. And it's interesting to see. I don't think there's a right way to do it. This has been shown that you can do it either way. But uh, I like how Bo Ryan has built that Wisconsin team. And I like Bo Ryan, and uh, it'd be fun to see Wisconsin cut down the nets. But uh, I'm not making that per- my prediction. I'm just saying that's what I'd like to see. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be fun. I mean, it's, it's Final Four. It's going to be exciting either way. All right, coming up next, Keith Foreman, the co-founder of Sports Business Radio. We're going to take a trip down memory lane. Ten years ago this week, we launched Sports Business Radio. There's actually probably going to be a story coming out on us. The same reporter who wrote a story about us ten years ago is probably going to author a story about us ten years later. If that comes out soon, I will post it uh, on our Twitter feed at SB Radio and also on our Facebook page. And you can find that link by going to sportsbusinessradio.com. But Keith Foreman coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SB Radio. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With the goal of enhancing your image, 
protecting your reputation and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. This is Sports Business Radio. We are back on Sports Business Radio, and it was 10 years ago this week that Sports Business Radio launched. And joining me now to reminisce and take a trip down memory lane is my college broadcast partner and the co-founder of Sports Business Radio, Keith Foreman. Keith, how are you? Oh, I'm good, Bergie. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years. I know. I feel old that it's been 10 years. But think about how much things have changed. Forget about the sports business landscape. When we started this show, there were no iPhones. There was no Twitter or Facebook. There weren't podcasts. There were no apps. There was none of that. And so many of those things have changed how we reach our audience now. It's pretty amazing. It is. It's true. And uh, yeah, to think that we were so consumed with how do we get this on the radio? Um, that was the big deal. And now you almost would approach something like this and not even think twice about radio. Yeah, there's so many ways that you can reach people. And I think a lot of people listen to this show from uh, the iTunes podcast. We're on the Swell app, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Obviously, you can go to sportsbusinessradio.com. But you know, I don't know about you, but I listen to most of my content now on demand on my iPhone while I'm driving or working out or whatever. So I kind of program my own little uh, radio network. That's true. Um, the other thing is that, you know, we would spend the week coming up with topics and, you know, different ideas. And, you know, we were only scratching the surface now. I mean, just looking at the um, newspaper today, the sports page today, it was littered with stuff that we would have done our original show over and, you know, and stuff covered in ways that it just wasn't, at least in the detail back then. I mean, look at the Miguel Cabrera, Cabrera contract that he just got. Look at, um, you know, the, the current BCS deal. Look at the, the, the Dodgers TV, you know, deal and the problems that they're, you know, struggling with, you know, on that. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Sports business is much more mainstream than it was 10 years ago, but I'm still surprised that there's not that many sports business reporters out there. It's something that outlets have still not embraced as, you know, something that's really uh, part of our everyday vernacular. It seems like Darren Ravel kind of hit the uh, niche out of the park early on, and he's been the go to guy, uh, you know, across so many uh, channels uh, for so long, it seems like, at least on. On ESPN. Oh, and then, you know, the other story I, I totally spaced in that, and this may be the biggest one of all, is this uh, Northwestern story. Yeah. The unionization of their football team. Yep. And we are talking about that on our show today. So, uh, yeah, big, big story. Looking back 10 years, uh, some of your, your fondest memories of sports business radio, whether it's a guest that stood out to you or a story that we covered? I think there are two. And you kind of raised one a few months ago. You reminded me of it. I went back and just could not believe still to this day how the dude got away with it. It's, I forget his name, but the PR guy 
for the San Francisco 49ers when he did the tapes, you know, the, the recorded, the videos. It was one of our players. caught in the cross lights. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the head of, I think it was PR for the Niners did this video series that he produced for the players on what not to do. And I mean, he obviously did everything you're not to do in the video series. <laughs> it was brilliant, really, I guess. I remember um, uh, doing that that in the studio that night, and I think we had to do a few takes of that story because uh, we were laughing so hard. Yeah. And it just it was one of those stories where you couldn't believe that uh, something like that happened and that it was a training video from a PR person. Right. And then the other one, um, by far um, – my favorite moment from the show of 10 years is uh, talking to John McEnroe while he's in his hotel room in, in Paris uh, covering or, you know, broadcasting the French open and just the way he was talking to us, it was like, you know, we'd known him all our life. He was so forthcoming. He was funny. He was informative. He, he wasn't afraid to say anything. He was playing guitar. Um, it was unlike any interview with a coach or a player or an owner that I think I've ever been a part of. No, it was great. It was definitely one of those unplanned, unscripted moments. And uh, he played Purple Haze on his guitar from his hotel in, in Paris. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of those priceless live radio moments that you just uh, it's hard to find those. But uh, looking ahead 10 years, what do you see for the sports business landscape 10 years from now? Uh, the NCAA will be completely different. I, I think that when you add up what's going on, you know, continuing to go on with this Ed O'Bannon case, um, when you look at what's going on with Northwestern, when you look at how much money is being made on, you know, March Madness, final, you know, the, the whole basketball tournament, and certainly the the, the football uh, playoff system, uh, it's, we're not even going to recognize. Uh, this college football and college basketball in 10 years. That, you, that, that to me is the biggest deal. Do you think at some point players will be paid or do you think it's just going to be a different structure for how the system is run? I think uh, players will be compensated in some way. And there's been so many different proposals on what that should be. But And those honestly are the two revenue producing sports. Um, I think there will be some system in place to, to have them paid or a trust you know, uh, for them after they graduate or, or something like that. The other thing that is going to be very different in 10 years, and already you're starting to see owners and franchises, you know, dealing with this is the whole arena versus the couch right. um, experience. And, you know, it's one thing to, to try to add all these great technical, you know, technologies to the experience at the game. Well, if you don't have a signal, um, it, it's pretty uh, pointless. And most um, experiences, when you're at an actual live sporting event, you don't have much of a signal. So there's not much to inter interact, you know, um, te technologically. Um, and then, you know, as, as we all know, sitting on your couch and watching games on your screen, it's so unbelievable as far as the quality of the experience and the information that you're getting. It's hard to even see what's going on at most games, let alone be able to afford to get in. Keith Foreman, the co-founder of Sports Business Radio, is joining me. We're reminiscing about 10 years ago this week, we started Sports Business Radio. You know, you bring up an interesting point about the, the live sports experience versus what you can get on your couch. Mark Cuban came out in the last week and talked gloom and doom for the NFL 
over yeah. the next decade. You know, Keith, I tend to agree with some of the things he said. I, I may not be uh, on board with everything that he said, but I think there are some serious concerns and challenges that the NFL will have to endure in the next 10 years. The player safety issue, that's something I'm going to be watching. And it's not just in the NFL. It's the highest profile. But, you know, you look at even women's soccer where there's concussions and things like that. But player safety and whether or not you're going to let your child play a sport and what the pool is of athletes going forward in the next 10 years, that's going to be interesting for me to watch as well. I think the NFL really struggled with that Obama comment um, a few months ago when he I think basically said he wouldn't allow his, if he had a son, his son to play football or something along those lines. They, they really chewed on that one for a while. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's hard because, uh, it's such a popular sport and we see the increased rights fees for the TV money. And, you know, those are into the billions, but you see former players like Tony Dorsett coming out and saying he's leaving with CTE and you have players like Junior Seau and Dave Durison take their lives and shoot themselves in the chest instead of in the head so they can preserve their brain to be studied. Those are really tough PR situations for any league. And, you know, if we see more of those or if there's someone hurt seriously on the field of play, that's going to be tough to overcome. Well, and what's just so dramatic is, I mean, you watch footage of the NFL back in the 70s and, and even the 80s, and it's just a different game. I mean, yeah, you had, you know, me, you know, tough guys like you know, that played for the Raiders and, you know, the Steelers, and you've got you know, Jack Lamberts and Lester Hayes, and those guys hit hard. But, I mean, it's just the guys today are so big and so fast and so strong, and so the the power by which, you know, these, these guys are hitting each other. It's just, it's just getting almost scary to watch. All right. The NFL, the NBA, major league baseball, which of those leagues is going to be the first to have a team playing outside of North America? NFL, NBA, and I think in baseball, I think it would have to be the NFL simply because the the season is so ridiculously long for basketball and baseball that it would be hard to justify that travel back and forth. Whereas NFL, I mean, you've got eight home games and eight away games. I think you, I think they could pull that off. It's interesting though, that the leagues are all playing games outside of North America and you know, there's more and more talk about which one of these leagues is going to have a team there. I certainly don't think they're ready, any of those leagues, for a team no. outside of North America yet. And in fact, we've discussed this many times. Uh, I could make a good argument for uh, even a few NFL teams, definitely uh, seven to ten NBA teams and a handful of Major League Baseball teams that you could contract. And I, I think that Do would it. be a better move than adding teams oh in Europe. God. If you could, if the NBA could could subtract twenty games from the regular season and lose about ten teams, it would be a quality product. That that's something I would watch. Yeah, the problem is, and every time we've had an owner on the show or when Commissioner Stern has joined us, everyone makes a suggestion. It's a better product. It's better for the fans. It's better viewing. But obviously, you lose all the revenue that goes with those games when they disappear. So how do you justify that to the owners? That's the riddle no one solved. Well, yeah, but, you know, everybody in, in their quest to make more and more and more money 
you know, dilutes the product. And it, you see it on just so many levels. I mean, what's fascinating to me is the NFL, you know, through the wisdom of Pete Rozelle, was designed for football. I mean, uh, um, for television. And, you know, all the other competing sports have just been so envious of just the, the multiple ways the NFL has been able to gear their games for television and make a ton of money through television. Well, to me, it's jumped the shark. I went down and saw the last game, or sorry, I guess two of the, the before the last game at Candlestick. And um, I had been to an NFL game in a few years, and I just sat there and just could not believe how difficult and painful it was to watch in person. The ads, the breaks, these guys, the players are just standing around waiting to play the game, and the fans, you know, granted, they're going to be in a new stadium soon, and that'll be a better experience, but to sit in that wretched old candlestick park um, and watch that was a completely uninspired um, experience and not worth what people are shelling out, you know, and paying to do so. All right. Before I let you go, we talked at the beginning of this conversation about how there was no Twitter, no Facebook, no uh, podcasting or apps in the next 10 years. You're a tech guy. You play in the tech space. What do you think we're looking at that's going to 10 years from now, we're going to go, wow, that's really changed how we do things. Um, I guess virtual reality. I think pretty soon you'll be able to strap on like a ocular rift um, helmet. Um, uh, what is it called? I, f- I forget what it's called that um, Facebook just bought for a couple billion. So what? They'll put a camera inside a helmet on a football field, and then you'll strap your helmet and, and goggles on, and basically um, be in that virtually. Is that where we're going? Maybe. I, I don't know that that's that appealing to me. Maybe it's appealing to. <laughs> You know, the younger generation, I don't know that that's that appealing to me, but I'm thinking about, you know, the iPhone and, and things like that have been such game changers. And, you know, I'm just wondering what's the next game changer that we're going to see over the next decade? Oh, man. I guess if we knew the answer to that, we wouldn't be doing this. We'd be making lots of money doing something else. Yeah. Um, Is it going to be Pillowhead? Yes, Pillowhead. There you go. <laughs> Something I'm still working on in my lab. Yes, Keith is uh, quite the inventor, and uh, one day we'll have to have him explain in more detail uh, his creation of Pillowhead, which I think might have a market out there. You know what I think people need to do is find a sport. Just find a sport that you can go back to and just enjoy it, enjoy it for the sport. I kind of did that with the Timbers here in Portland. I really didn't grow up a soccer guy. I didn't play soccer. I didn't watch soccer. I knew nothing about it. And when the Timbers became an MLS team, I decided, you know what, I'm going to actually buy season tickets. First time I bought season tickets to anything. And I've just sat back and let myself be a fan for this. And it has been totally enjoyable. And it's a pretty pure soccer, you know, sport experience. There isn't a whole lot of bells and whistles and stuff that, you know, goes along with it. You sit there, you're there for two hours, uh, you watch these guys play and you leave. It's it's without all the, the stuff, the added stuff that, that you have to compete with now. Yeah, the problem for us is we know too much and we yes. can't go to an event because we've worked around events and just enjoy it. But the one thing I will say is this. You have a son. I have a daughter. When I go to an event with her, I tend to see it through her eyes more so than I do nitpicking it and thinking what I would do right. if I was running it or how it should be different or anything right. like that. So at least we have the innocence of our children to look through their eyes at some sporting events. It's true. And it's funny to watch them, you know, bend down and, and look at their phone and try to do something during the game and then not have a signal to be able to do it and then be forced <laughs> to just watch the game. 
<laughs> yes. Luckily, my daughter does not have a phone yet, so well, she's not yeah. in that in that yeah. area yet. Yeah. Well, it's been uh, a great 10 years. I hope there's many more to come. Uh, obviously, you were instrumental in getting this off of the ground, so thank you for that. And, uh, you know, it's always fun to have you back on the show when you have time. Now you're a busy executive, so you don't have as yes. much time to uh, devote to no, things like this. And uh, thanks for, for having me on, and especially for this moment. And, you know, congrats to you, Brian, for, you know, Sticking with this thing as long as you have, it's it's played such a, an important part of the whole total you know sports media landscape. And you know, there's a lot of people that have tuned in you know over the years from time to time to you know and even kind of shared you know what they've heard um, you know themselves on their own you know platforms. And um, it's just been a great thing to be a part of. So thanks, man. Thank you very much. All right, that's Keith Foreman, the co-founder of Sports Business Radio. Keith, throw out your uh, Twitter handle if people want to follow you. Oh, uh, one of my at for Keith. Yeah, you're a real tweeter. You can't even remember well, your Twitter. Not lately, but I I went off on Adidas the other night for those terrible UCLA uniforms. How do you take this iconic, classic UCLA uniform? They're even playing as a road team. They could have had the classical baby blues, and they just they just trashed it. So that's the kind of uh, Twitter insight people can expect when they follow at for Keith, F-O-R-K-E-I-T-H. Keith Foreman, thank you, and uh, we'll do this again in 10 more years. All right, sounds good. See you then. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio. Fill my heart with song and let me sing. Hello, my name is Sophia Berger. I want to tell you about the Pixie Project. The Pixie Project matches pets to the right people. The Pixie Project takes pride in finding matches for both people and animals. The Pixie Project also offers low-cost veterinary assistance. My family worked with the Pixie Project to adopt our lovable puppy, Scotty. He's a great addition to our family. So if you get a dog or cat, kitten or puppy, you should go to the Pixie Project. To learn more about the Pixie Project, visit them at www.pixieproject.org. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We are back, and my guest is Rand Gatlin. He's an investigative reporter for Yahoo Sports. You can find him on Twitter at Rand underscore Gatlin. He's been on this show many times before. Rand, how are you? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing really well. And as soon as I saw the National Labor Relations Board story and the fact that they ruled that Northwestern University football players who receive granted aid scholarships are employees and thus entitled to the right to unionize, I thought of you because you and I have discussed this very topic on this show many times over the years. What were your thoughts when you saw that ruling come down? It's about time. Uh you know, when you look at it, it's it, there, there are these very complex uh, legal considerations that people are going through, right? So it's the distinction between an amateur athlete as defined by the NCAA and an employee as defined by the law, more specifically the National Labor Relations Act. And how do those two things interact, if at all? But if you really just take a step back and you look at it from a 10,000-foot view, it's a very simple calculus. And this is something that we've discussed many, many times. How much money are these kids producing in the market? And is it just to continue depriving them of a more fair share of that which they create in the market? And I think many of us have uh, long been of the mindset that, of course, it's unjust to deprive them of their share of these earnings that they're making. I've talked about this a lot of times. When you take Johnny Manziel, 
yeah, yeah, a Texas A&M University says he produces someone in the ballpark of $500 billion in uh, media exposure and other benefits to the university during his Heisman run, and yet he's demonized for selling his autograph, his own autograph. So uh, my reaction very simply was, it's about time. If the NCAA will not change because it's the right thing to do, then some kind of force needs to be applied. And whether these kids end up being uh, uh, becoming unionized or not is, is a matter for another day. But as of right now, they at least have some binding uh, legal decision that allows them to say, you guys have to treat us more fairly. So in addition to being an investigative reporter, you also have a law degree. So talk to me about how long is this battle going to last? Everyone I've talked to this week has said we're in the first quarter of what is probably a multiple-year battle. How do you see this unfolding from here? Well, so the next move is for everybody to go up to the the national NLRB board, and they're going to go before them, and and, and essentially Northwestern is going to ask, we don't think that these guys are employees. Your satellite office in Chicago said that they are. We'd like you to throw that decision out. That is unlikely to occur. The National Labor Relations Board is likely to affirm what the Chicago office uh, indicated, which is that these football players at Northwestern University are employees, uh, as defined by the NLRA. From there, uh, you're going to go to the circuit courts. Now, when that will occur is if the players go and try and bargain with uh, Northwestern and Northwestern refuses to bargain. Uh, then you're gonna you're gonna see. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Let me back up. That's when you'll go to the NLRB main board. So the, so the the bargaining will start very quickly. They're gonna try and get to the table with Northwestern. Northwestern is gonna go try and get it tossed out. Then it goes to the federal circuit courts. Regardless of who wins or loses, this will be appealed all the way up. So they'll go to a federal circuit court. This is interesting in and of itself, Brian. And this is something that, from a legal perspective, us law nerds can kind of want out on, as we say. It's there's there's a question as to which forum they're going to bring this matter in. So the circuit courts, uh, the federal circuit courts that reside in uh, the D.C. area, the Virginia area, where the NLRB is at, tend to be more democratic. If you believe in the stereotypes of Democrats and Republicans, it, it thus will be more pro-union, a more pro-union uh, forum. The forum in which they could bring it in the district where Northwestern is located um, in in Evanston is more Republican. And thus, again, if you believe the stereotypes would be less inclined to side with pro-union arguments. So there are so many really fascinating battles that will be occurring behind the scenes. But I think we're looking at 12 to 15 months before we get an ultimate determination, uh, probably from the, uh, from the circuit courts. And then you're looking for then whether cert will be uh, granted up all the way to the Supreme Court. It seems unlikely that anyone's going to lay down here. However, the NCAA has so much at stake with this, it may very well be in their best interest to just bargain with these young men. Uh, and this is something that you have to think about. You know, Will the NCAA be involved in any way, shape, or form with Northwestern's discussions with these young men? Or will they allow them to go at it alone? As you can imagine, any decision that's handed down and that's legally binding with Northwestern can impact the entire NCAA enterprise. So I, I do agree with the, the folks that say we're in the first quarter. Uh, I don't know how long specifically it will take, but I think that we can all safely assume that this will be a multi-year battle, and we are just seeing the beginning of it right now. Rand Gatlin, investigative reporter of Yahoo Sports, is our guest. So it was interesting. There was a long conclusion 
that was released by the NLRB. And part of the conclusion breaks down the revenue and cost structure of the Northwestern University football program. Now, a lot of people might presume that a football program such as Northwestern might be losing money. But in fact, we find out that they generated $30.1 million in revenue and just $21.7 million in expenses for the 2012-2013 academic year. This finding of $8.4 million in annual profits for Northwestern calls into doubt any argument that Northwestern would cease to operate as a result of the finding that its athletes may unionize. So this, to me, was a really interesting finding because we hear all the time from the NCAA, oh, so many of our programs lose money. We're a pass-through organization. We're simply re-granting that money out to our member organizations. This finding definitely uh, doesn't substantiate that argument. No, it doesn't. And when you look at the broader figure, I mean, you, you just touched on all the pertinent numbers for the one-year snapshot, but let's look at the 10-year period that they actually analyzed. They said over a quarter of a billion dollars in revenue was produced. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. The listeners that are with us right now who have business backgrounds, who understand how markets work and businesses operate, understand expenses, I'm, I'm sorry, profit is just revenue in the door, less expenses. Okay. Well, in these NCAA programs, we hear that all the time. Well, they're operating at a loss. Well, that's not enough for me. I want to know how you're running your business. Open right. up the book. Are you running it efficiently or are you doing what I think so many NCAA programs do, which is if a dollar comes in the door, they spend it. If $10 comes in the door, they spend it. If $100 million comes in the door, they spend it. And they're going to figure out a way to spend it no matter what because there is very little incentive for them to hold on to massive chunks of money for, for a number of reasons, but politically they can say, hey, look, guys, we're operating at a loss. Boosters, we need more money. We can't even keep up. You want us to keep winning on the field, right? We need more dough. Well, the problem with that is when you look at, for instance, the University of Oregon or you look at any other school with outlandish facilities and all of this interesting stuff, that's where the money goes. It's the Gilded Age. You've got Ferrari leather on the seats in the in the, <laughs> in the video viewing room. You've got imported foosball tables from, you know, Europe. You've got uh, Nepalese rugs. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Instead of paying the kids a fair share of the market value, and if you look at NFL teams, very few NFL teams have facilities as nice as, for instance, the University of Oregon's. Why is that? Because they don't have the money to invest in those kinds of facilities when they're paying players millions and millions of dollars. And I, and I guarantee you this, the players care a lot less about the cool facility than they do about having money in their pockets. So, you know, you really have to analyze this thing in a more sophisticated manner. If the people that just take the NCAA stump speech or, frankly, the other side stump speech without looking at the details are doing themselves a disservice. And I tend to kind of tune those people out when I talk to them. If it's clear that you have not analyzed this issue in a sophisticated manner and you really are poking for the truth behind the rhetoric, then it's difficult to have those conversations at this point. We're so far along that I think increasingly uh, the folks that are really going to have insight to share here that's unique are the people that have been paying attention to this and chasing the details for years and years and years. And uh, I'd like to think at this point, certainly you and I have been talking about it long enough that we might have some unique insight. Uh, but, you know, there, there are a lot of people that are, that are caught up in the rhetoric being pushed out, not only by the NCAA, but also by the opposing side. And you really just have to understand what's happening behind the scenes to get to the heart of the matter. Another part of the ruling that 
was interesting to me, and I already knew this, but I think it's great that it's being brought to light so other people can understand it, is players devote 40 to 50 hours per week to football-related activities, including travel to and from their scheduled games. So, okay, a lot of people would say, no kidding. We know that college athletes have to spend a lot of time, but what they don't realize is that prevents them from having work-study jobs. It prevents them from concentrating on their studies. They're spending a lot of time on their craft, which, by the way, is producing millions of dollars in a lot of cases of revenue for the school. You know, one of the things that, that I think might come of this, forget about paying athletes. And by the way, I've said many times, I think athletes deserve more compensation than they currently get. But one of the things that I think is very realistic to come out of this is the fact that we may see some of the rules changed around how much time athletes have to spend devoted and committed to practice time, to playing time, all of those things that go with being a student athlete. Because frankly, the emphasis is more on athlete and less on student the more you dig into the numbers around this. Yeah, you're 100% right, Brian. You hit the nail on the head. You know, How can you say that, a, that a, in this case, football players are guy that's devoting 50-plus hours to football activities each week and is mandated to do so lest he be at risk of losing his scholarship is anything other than an employee, especially when you add in all the controlling factors that the individual who made this decision in Chicago uh, laid out. They can tell you what to wear. You have to register your car with the compliance department. They can put a clause or they have put a clause in your contract that says if you don't accept your coach's friend request on Facebook or Twitter or other social media, that's grounds for dismissing you. Right? So they're exhibiting all of this incredible control over well that sounds like a job. Right. <laughs> when you walk into your when you walk into your office, there's a dress code, right? And and depending on where you're at, some places are more formal, some less so. But there are repercussions for violating that dress code. You have to be there for a set number of hours in many, many cases. You know, they tell you how you have to conduct yourself while on premises, and they also, in some cases, will tell you how, to, how you have to conduct yourself as a steward of the company outside of uh, working hours. So, you know, it's very clear here that the student athletes are being asked to spend enormous amounts of time, these college athletes, rather, enormous amounts of time uh, dedicating their efforts to increasing the school's success on the field, their own, obviously, as well. But how much time are you left for then to be a real student? If you're dedicating 50 hours a week to your sport, how much time do you really have left to be a student, especially considering when you're in college, what's a big chunk of being in college? Your social life. All right. kids want to enjoy their social life. So add another 10 to 15 hours there per week on social life, which is a, probably a, a gross understatement of how much time they spend on that. Now you're already looking at 70 hours per week that's off the books. You've got to sleep at some point, and you've got to stay eligible. So, you know, we've seen a lot of instances like this, and this is important to point out. For those who have not seen the Outside the Lines report on academics and keeping kids eligible or the HBO Real Sports episode that just aired that focused heavily on UNC and how these kids are funneled into classes like Swahili and uh, bogus paper classes at the University of North Carolina that they didn't even get to choose. They said, we came on campus and they handed us uh, a schedule that said, here are your classes. And the classes were these bogus, easy-to-pass classes they didn't even have to show up for. You know, you're not giving them an education. You're keeping them eligible so that you can forward your own interests, which is winning on the field, generating more revenue, 
creating a larger uh, 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 batch of exposure for the university so you can get more people to enroll, et cetera. And, and you just boil it all down to its essence. It's real simple. No questions asked. These are massive money-making institutions, endeavors, and, it, and if that's the case, then the fact that the kids are the only ones being deprived of the ability to share in that market is an injustice, and it's finally being approached and attacked, and it's about time. One of the other footnotes to the NLRB ruling noted, it is undisputed that the employer sells merchandise to the public, such as football jerseys with a player's name and number. Again, this is another point of differentiation between the typical college student who gets uh, a scholarship or is attending college and someone who is being utilized as the NLRB would term an employee so that the university can make money off of that athlete. So, I mean, it's almost ludicrous to think that someone like Johnny Manziel and uh, typical student Joe at Texas A&M would be under the same rules and regulations and considerations when Johnny Manziel, as you mentioned, is bringing $500 million worth of exposure and other benefits to Texas A&M. I just think there's got to be some way that the student-athletes are compensated differently and then also where their schedules are regulated differently so uh, they can enjoy the college experience and not be utilized as, frankly, free labor. And if you're going to make them free labor, then they need to be compensated for that labor. Yeah, I mean, these are all great points. And the reality is, is this, you know, and we've talked about this before. I always take umbrage with this notion that every single kid is going to be a scholar. They're not. I knew kids that were on the football team at my university when I was, when I was there that could not read, at least not at a high level, and that certainly could not craft grammatically correct sentences to save their lives. So what are we going to do? Demonize those kids because the system failed them prior to them arriving in college? Or are we going to recognize, look, this kid is probably not going to be a doctor. He's probably not going to run a major financial institution, but we do have to teach him transferable life skills so that he can be successful beyond this realm. And if we, and if we acknowledge that, then we stop dealing with this fallacy that every single kid that's in school values an education. Some of these kids are not equipped to value an education when they get there, and you don't get a meaningful education when you're not prepared to take your 101 level classes when you arrive on campus. So there are a million different things that can grow out of this, Brian. And I think that we're, again, we're a long way from seeing any finality. One thing is abundantly clear. Uh, There is going to be a revolutionary change that occurs in college athletics. It is not going to look the way that it looks today uh, in a year or two years from now. And I think if you go back and you listen to our earliest conversations, which I believe began in around 2010, we were saying this then, and I think uh, <laughs> at the risk of sounding pompous, but but I, I, I've, I've seen this coming for a while. I think I said in 2010, five years from now, the NCAA will no longer look like what you thought uh, or what you think it looks like today. It will be dramatically different, and that's because you could see on the horizon all of these things coming to be. So, you know, they, they have to figure something out. If the kids are going to work 50, 60 hours in a week, pay them. If you're going to cut down the hours and keep it within 20 hours, then they probably don't lose this issue in front of the NLRB because then you could say, well, it's a part-time endeavor. They're spending 50 hours on there, 40 hours on their scholastic endeavors, and 20 hours on school. So this is a this is a side deal for them. Instead, they said it was the opposite. They're spending far more time on athletics than academics, and if that's the case, then they are primarily athletes first, students second. 
And the NCAA is going to have to address all of these things lest the entire system collapse on itself. By the way, I've seen it reported that a scholarship at Northwestern, the average scholarship is worth $59,000 a year. So you're looking at about $240,000 over the course of four years for your education at Northwestern. Nothing to sneeze at, but again, I don't think it equals what those student athletes are generating for the athletic department. And, you know, I gave you the numbers a few minutes ago that. $30 million is what Northwestern's football program, just their football program, generated in the 2012-2013 academic year. My guest is Rand Gatlin. He's an investigative reporter with Yahoo Sports. You can find him on Twitter at Rand underscore Gatlin. Rand, I want to ask you about a decision the Philadelphia Eagles made recently. They cut, not traded, they cut Deshaun Jackson, who's 27 years old. He's in the prime of his NFL career. And the reports that have come out are that Deshaun Jackson is linked to some shady uh, happenings off the field of play. To me, I think a lot of people were really surprised by this because they see such a talent like Deshaun Jackson and essentially the Eagles cut him loose for nothing, but they didn't want to be tied to someone who could pose problems in their locker room or could cause the NFL organization embarrassment down the road. That's kind of a shift in mentality, isn't it? You know, it's interesting. I think at this point, uh, obviously there was an investigative report that came out earlier today that indicates that Deshaun Jackson uh, runs a record label. And under that record label's umbrella, there were individuals that uh, the paper reported or believed to be gang-affiliated. And so they attribute, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, skepticism about Deshaun in the Eagles organization to those ties. That may be true, but I think it's too early to say they cut him definitively as a result of those ties. I think that Deshaun Jackson is a complex individual. He does do work in the community, so there is a positive side. It's not all negative. But certainly he's a guy whose act can grow tiring for certain teams that are averse to those kinds of distractions. Now, the bigger issue, I think, here from a business standpoint, or at least a very big issue, is Deshaun Jackson was going to be due somewhere in the ballpark of $10 million this year, and there were rumblings that he wanted to restructure his contract. That's a big, big number and a big cap hit. If, if you can go out, which they think they can, we think this is one of the deepest wide receiver classes and certainly in recent memory in the NFL, if you can go out and you can find a speedster like a Brandon Cooks or you can go out from Oregon State or you can go out and you can find a speedster like Dre Archer and then you've got that vertical threat to stretch the field and work in Chip Kelly's offense and you can pay them what you pay a guy that you draft at the bottom of one or the middle of two, which is far, far less than $10 million, and you lock him up for between four and six years, that is more business savvy for an organization that they believe they can get that kind of value in the draft than paying a guy $10 million. So yes, he's at the peak of his career. Yes, he's a proven performer, but he does have this, these, these other pieces of baggage that you have to deal with. And you have to you know, understand how that all factors in. Here's the other thing that I think is interesting to think about with Deshaun Jackson. Though he is is connected to these guys through his record label. He grew up in a really rough area, okay? We'd like for these guys to leave those areas and completely cut off ties with folks that the rest of mainstream America may deem to be bad elements. In this case, obviously, I think there are some allegations that some of these individuals were involved in uh, or at least accused of being involved in murders, et cetera, or a murder. 
And that is troubling, especially in light of Aaron Hernandez. But I think you have to really uh, take a step back and not just say it's just this report alone that caused this to occur. There's a whole world of considerations that the Eagles had to uh, to uh, think about here. And I think this is probably a decision that was based on the sum of all of those parts, not just this one thing. Well, here's a fact. We know that Aaron Hernandez was arrested last year on murder charges. We know, and I know this from people I've spoken to, and I speak to business people who are at the ownership level or who run these teams, intel around security with NFL teams ramped up after that Aaron Hernandez arrest because owners said to their security people, look, I can't be caught in a situation like Robert Kraft was caught in in New England with the Patriots where I've got a guy involved in shady dealings and now there's negative headlines around my organization. So I think owners and GMs have really uh, ramped up the security intel around looking at what players are doing off the field. And again, they're paying these guys millions of dollars. They're employees of the organization. It's within their rights to do that. So I guess my point is this, Rand. Owners are taking less of a chance on a guy who has even the hint of possible problems off the field, even if he is a talent like Deshaun Jackson, because they don't want to find themselves in a situation like Robert Kraft found himself in with Aaron Hernandez. Would you think that makes sense? Oh, it makes 100% sense, and you, you couldn't be more spot on. You're absolutely correct. Nobody wants to find themselves in a situation like uh, Robert Kraft and the Patriots did with Aaron Hernandez, and certainly I do think that that is a very, very meaningful piece of this discussion, especially considering the story comes out, and 40 minutes later, the Eagles announced that they've cut Deshaun Jackson. So, you know, it, there is a cause and effect relationship between the two. And you know, here's the deal for Deshaun. I get it. You know, I, I didn't come from the hottest side of the tracks. And so there are people in your past that you have affinity for that are not bad people per se, but may have done some things that society deems to be bad. And they have to deal with that. But the problem for Deshaun Jackson is he lives in a different world now. So to the extent that he continues to affiliate with individuals who are still operating on the other side of the tracks, and that detrimentally impacts the way that he's viewed in his business world, in the NFL, it is something that he needs to make better decisions on. It is not acceptable to be an individual being paid $10 million by a team and have these kinds of questions come up for your employer. Nobody wants to deal with that stuff, whether you're in the NFL or anywhere else. And so, you know, I think you're 100% correct. And, and here's the other thing I think people should think about. I'll, I'll, I'll leave this out there, and I won't elaborate too much. But there was a robbery reported at Sean Jackson's home a while back. One of the things that was reportedly stolen, uh, or, or some of the things that were reportedly stolen, were weapons. Well, where did those weapons go? Who stole them? And if they are used in the commission of a crime, does that bring disrepute upon the organization that Sean Jackson is with? Certainly, I think the answer to that question is, at the very least, it's going to be a distraction, even if he's not involved in using those weapons, if they are in fact used, if they are registered to him, or if they're able to be traced back to him or people that he knows, that becomes a massive, massive problem. So I think that's something to pay attention to. And uh, maybe not now, maybe not six months from now, but sometime in the future, uh, if those guns pop up anywhere and they are used in the commission of a crime in any capacity, 
can be a question as to whether the Eagles foresaw that occurring, and that was part of their calculus in letting him go here. So I have a company called Everything is on the Record. We work with athletes on media and social media training, and one of the things we talk to the athletes about is you are judged by the company you keep, and well, your your actions are a ripple effect with your team, with your endorsers, with other brands that are associated with the team. And I think that's coming more and more into play as owners and GMs are getting more savvy and they're looking more and more at the character of the players that they put on a team. Rand Gatlin is our guest, Yahoo Sports. You can find him at yahoosports.com. You can find him on Twitter at Rand underscore Gatlin. Rand, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, and uh, let's do it again soon. Likewise, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Darren Heitner. He writes for Forbes, focusing on the business of sports. He's the founder of the Sports Agent Blog, which you can find at sportsagentblog.com. It's a site that covers the sports agent industry. Heitner is also a professor of sport agency management at Indiana University Bloomington, and he's a Miami-based attorney specializing in sports law, entertainment law, music law, and intellectual property law. He's also the author of a new book, How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know. Darren, welcome to Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's good to have you on. You're as busy as uh, anyone I know. I forgot to mention, uh, great follow on Twitter at Darren Heitner. So let's talk about how you got started in the sports industry because you got started at a very young age. How did you choose the sports law path? Well, I probably wouldn't recommend my path to anybody. I think it was full of ignorance and a little bit of uh, a little bit of luck. I first got a taste of the sports world interning in Atlanta, Georgia, at a company called CSE. It used to be known as Career Sports Entertainment, and actually, that is something I would recommend to anybody interested, especially in the sports agency realm. 
uh, that internship provided me with a wealth of experience, of, of knowledge that I gained of exactly what the sports agency industry is all about. Obviously, many people have watched the movie Jerry Maguire. Um, you know, you watch the show Entourage. You think you know what it's all about to be an agent. It's nothing like that. The glitz and glam, it's not there. But I was still interested in being a sports agent at that time. So what did I do? Finished up my degree. Actually started a website called Sports Agent Blog in the process, which is still going on today with daily posts. But when I started law school, I said, the hell, the hell with it. Let's give it a shot. Let's start a sports agency from scratch. And that's probably where I would say not necessarily the best road to stardom. Um, got my feet wet, luckily, receiving referrals from other sports agents who just weren't interested in particular clients that were coming their way. And who was I and who was my partner at the time to say no to them? So we started representing, believe it or not, professional bowlers, trying to get endorsement opportunities for them, and found some success in that area, grew our practice, got into baseball, got into placing basketball players overseas, um, finished up law school, a year later decided sports agency just was not for me, decided to focus my legal practice on sports, entertainment, intellectual property matters, and here I am today. Thankfully, with all the, the networking, with all the research that I've done over time, I've been put in a position where I'm able to separate myself maybe from some of the competition, um, and, and I'm happy, I'm very happy with my practice. So you've got the new book, How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know. Tell us a little bit about the book and why people should go out and buy it. Is this something that students will find valuable? Is it anyone looking to work in the sports industry? Should only people practicing law? Tell us about it. You know, I had a little bit of an argument with my publisher. The publisher is the American Bar Association. And our argument didn't center on the first part of the title, which is how to play the game, but it, it was based on what every sports attorney needs to know. I didn't like using the word attorney, even though it is largely infused with legal issues. I think that I was able to make it uh, comprehensible by individuals who are not necessarily in law school, not necessarily practitioners in the legal realm, um, but for anybody who has a real interest in sport and what goes on behind the scenes. So the book covers everything from collective bargaining, the representation and agency side of the business, ethics and conflicts, uh, NCAA eligibility. Um, a hot topic right now is this issue with um, the National Labor Relations Board and Northwestern football players where um, there was an approval of, of unionization, and that's actually a topic that's discussed within the amateurism section. So, you know, we, we cover a variety of different topics within the book itself, talking about historic landmark cases, but also throwing in some cases that I've been a part of. And I think that it, it makes the, the book, which is about 200 and, and 20 pages long, a somewhat easy read and, and digestible by, you know, individuals who may not have that legal background. Well-known agent Lee Steinberg wrote the foreword to your book. I thought that was pretty cool. How did you and Lee form a relationship? Well, first of all, today happens to be Lee Steinberg's birthday, so happy birthday to him. Um, you know, over time, as I said, started Sports Agent Blog back in 2005 as a New Year's resolution have kept it going now for nine years. And and due to running that website, I've been able to 
meet many of the more prominent individuals in the sports agency field. Among those, obviously, is Lee Steinberg, the basis for uh, Jerry Maguire. So I've, I've kept in contact with him throughout. I think we interviewed him very early on in the development of Sports Agent Blog. Uh, happened to see him at his Super Bowl party this year in New York. He's doing very well. It was very highly attended. Uh, he seems to be in great spirits, and I wish him the absolute best in his return to, to being a sports agent. You know, he's he's dealt with some issues over time, obviously. I think it's been well documented, but hopefully he's been able to put those behind him, and, and he'll build up a, a strong practice once again. You know, it's interesting you talk about the path of the sports agent, and, you know, I think the one thing people don't see are – the plane rides, the long car rides, you can chase an athlete for years and years. And at the end, uh, either you lose them altogether or, uh, you know, I always think of someone like uh, Aaron Goodwin, who got LeBron for his first contract, which was really nothing. And then when the second one comes along, LeBron moves along from Aaron Goodwin and, you know, the next person gets the really juicy big contract. So it is a tough industry. And, and I think you're right. It's glamorized, but it's really not that glamorous. Yeah. Although I think if you talk to Aaron, he probably would say, don't cry for me. You know, he, he started with LeBron. I think he uh, had Kevin Durant in the beginning. I think he also had Dwight Howard. And I may be wrong on those, but I'm pretty certain. And, and he was able to certainly exploit his his time with those players to put together marketing deals to negotiate those first contracts, although it is general practice for NBA agents to not even take a commission on those first contracts. Um, that said, you're right. It's it's a very, very difficult industry to navigate. And then even after all the recruiting is done and you're able to land a couple of big clients, you have to worry about retaining them. And sometimes uh, your competition will resort to unethical practices, sometimes even violating state and federal law in order to try to obtain a strong clientele base. So it, it's very difficult. It's very costly, uh, especially today. It costs an exorbitant amount of money, not only to recruit players, but then to train them, especially when we're talking about players who are destined for the NFL. Training costs can cost up to twenty to $30,000 per player. Uh, so you have to have a bankroll. You have to have the wherewithal to be able to digest players coming and going. Um, and you have to be willing to, to dedicate a large chunk of your time to not necessarily negotiating contracts, but to traveling the country, just, just recruiting, trying to sign them up. I'm kind of of the theory that over the next 10, 15 years, only the mega agencies, the Wassermans, the IMGs, the CAAs, the Octagons, maybe a few others will exist. I just think they're either the big ones are going to either snatch up the smaller ones or the big ones are the only ones that have that kind of a bankroll to survive. What are your thoughts on that? Well, since I've been covering the industry, I certainly have seen exactly that occur. While boutique agencies continue to exist and, and we see new ones sprout up every year, and in fact, you know, the NFL Players Association gets roughly 200 new applicants per year, and, and a lot of them are individuals who are not associated with the big firms. We have seen the logger dares sprout up, um, the CAAs, the now William Morris Endeavor, who just purchased IMG, um, even Excel Sports Management uh, by acquiring smaller boutiques or, or, or individual agents 
and building up the, these robust firms. It makes it very difficult for you know the smaller agents and smaller agencies to compete. And now, all of a sudden, in the past year, a wrench has been thrown into everything. We have Jay Z creating Rock Nation Sports. So, and this is something that was created from scratch, but obviously Jay Z is in a very different in very different circumstances than the vast majority of individuals who try to create an agency from scratch. And he's already been able to to build an agency with about ten standout star players. So it'll be interesting to see not only how the conglomerates continue to grasp power, but now if others in a similar position as Jay Z, maybe in the entertainment world, decide to give it a shot and see if they can compete against some of these others in the business uh, and have the same sort of success that Jay-Z has had at a very, very fast pace. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. My guest is Darren Heitner. He writes for Forbes.com. He's also the author of the new book, How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know. You can find him on Twitter at Darren Heitner. All right, I want to ask you, about Mark Cuban's recent comments on the NFL. He said, I think the NFL is 10 years away from an implosion. I'm just telling you, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, and they're getting hoggy. You cover the NFL for Forbes.com. I know you pay very close attention to the NFL and what they're doing. What do you make of Cuban's comments? Well, I think with regards to his initial comments, which seemed to be focused on the expansion of these TV deals and perhaps having NFL games slated on pretty much every day of the week, Mark Cuban is a little misguided. Um, I think there is somewhat of an insatiable desire to have football at all times of the day, seven days a week. And I think that's sort of fueled by this expansion in the world of fantasy sports. And that's particularly a sub-industry that I've been focusing on quite a bit on Forbes.com. And I think that that sub-industry of fantasy sports will continue to grow both on the season-long scale and also looking at the daily fantasy sports sector that that has been uh, progressing over time. So I think that that's not necessarily the concern. But in Mark Cuban's responses to some criticism, I think that he highlighted a very good point. The only way for the attraction of the NFL to continue or expand is if the talented players continue to exist. And safety is a gigantic concern. I noticed in his lengthy response that one key point is, will parents allow their children to play, and will individuals, those children, even want to play and put their bodies at risk? I I had this conversation quite a bit with many former players, current players, and just regular spectators of the sport, and I know from my standpoint, if I'm given that opportunity, even though there's the potential, and let's just pretend like I have the body to play in the NFL, I probably would not put my body at risk knowing the potential long-term consequences, even though I stand to make millions of dollars, save me maybe being a kicker. So I think that could be a major or a potential downfall of the NFL if there are not the necessary um elements added to the game so that we can somehow enhance the security of these individuals and their families 
that they'll be able to to think on their own later on in life. That's a huge, huge concern. And obviously, we still have the pending NFL concussion lawsuit, which there's a proposed settlement, but there's a lot of issues with that. So I'm not so concerned about the TV deals. I think the major concern for me is the health and safety of the players going forward. Yeah, you bring up several good points that I want to address. Number one, um, you know, we look at guys like Tony Dorsett, who's a Hall of Famer, who says he's living with CTE. We've seen Junior Seau and Dave Durison take their own lives and, in fact, take their own lives by shooting themselves in the chest to preserve their brains to be studied. And when you have news continuing to come out like that, and then we see, you know, other, uh, you know, really good players like Jim McMahon say, I drive my kids to school and I can't remember how to get home. The more those stories come out, A, I think you're right. It scares parents from saying, you know what, I'm going to let my kid play football. But then, you know, for people like me who remember growing up watching Jim McMahon and Tony Dorsett, it makes me really sad. And it's certainly not the stories that the NFL wants out there. Is there anything? That the NFL can do. I, I get five press releases a day from the NFL saying what they're doing with player health and safety. And I commend them for trying to be proactive. But then I wonder, is there anything that can be done to protect players who are so big and so strong and so fast from, you know, playing a barbaric sport, quite frankly? And, and you know, every time you're getting hit, it's like being in a car accident. Is there anything that can be done? Because I don't think there is. Well, that that's a, a key issue. Violence is inherent in the sport itself, um, and save changing the game completely from one that is based on contact to one that's somewhat like two-hand touch. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that anybody will be satisfied that has to make that determination of, do I want to put my future years at risk for short-term monetary gain. Um, so, so really the answer is, I, I don't think so. And, and if you do drastically change the sport, well, then do you lose your fan base? I mean, I don't want to watch two-hand touch. I'll be quite honest with you. I, I love watching the sport as it is. At the same time, I feel miserable when I have former players come, to my, come into my office and ask me, what can you do for me because I'm having issues. I, I, I'm, I'm having issues with anger. I'm having issues remembering things. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a catch-22 almost for the NFL because on one hand – you want to do whatever is necessary to protect the players. I truly believe that Commissioner Goodell and everybody else at the NFL does care about the long-term stability of players. But at the same time, you have the countervailing interest of keeping the game as it is without completely changing it. So, you know, that's why these guys get the big dollars. I'm hoping that they can somehow come up with a plan that at least changes the game to the extent that players are better protected and maybe have a greater um, reason to, to put their bodies on the line without having the extreme risk that they currently do uh, going out there on Sundays, on Thursdays, and potentially Saturdays and Fridays, which is what Mark Cuban is concerned about. Let's talk for a minute about the lawsuit. Everyone saw, oh, the NFL paid out $765 million to former players. But if you talk to people who were involved with that, they'd say, Nothing's really been paid out yet, and there's a lot of those players who were involved in that suit that are resuing the NFL. What's the status of that lawsuit, and could the NFL end up paying billions instead of that 765 number? Truthfully, the status is a mess. 
it, it, there's a proposed settlement on the table. There's an issue over whether or not the $760 million can appropriately cover all of the damages that have been alleged, not only by those players who've been named as plaintiffs in, in the hundreds of lawsuits that have been filed, but the settlement would potentially cover every single former player if that player goes for baseline testing and it's found that there's some sort of cognitive disease um, based on, on the player playing in the NFL. And, and that's another issue, obviously, a causation issue. Was the damage, did the damage occur during the NFL days or prior to that in college, high school, et cetera. Um, beyond that, there's another issue that sprouted up, whether or not the attorney's fees are um, justified, because many of the plaintiff's attorneys not only want a, a portion of the settlement that's been carved out for attorney's fees, but also want to recover based on their individual retainer letters with their own clients that oftentimes uh, are very large in, in the amount of in the percentage that they would be guaranteed based on any recovery, whether it's settlement or a judgment. Um, right now, we're, we're sort of in limbo. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, there are many players who say, I don't want to be a part of this settlement. I want to be able to get more money because I think my damages are above and beyond three million, four million, five million, depending on the type of of injury that's that's occurred and the type of consequences thereof. So the answer is that there's a lot of confusion at this point, and you know, the Judge Brody will have, um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't envy her position um, because she's sort of caught in the middle of many different interests. Obviously, at the end of the day, you want these players who are suffering to get some money to pay for these damages that that you know are are going on are continuing day to day. But meanwhile, it seems like this is something that won't be resolved for quite some time. So, I mean, let me ask you this question: Is someone like Tony Dorsett is he getting any money right now to be able to? help him because he says he's living with CTE or does he have to wait until the lawyers figure this all out? He's not getting any money directly from the lawsuit itself. Now there are other instrumentalities in place where former players are receiving certain stipends in order to cover some of the disabilities that, that have occurred in different bodies. But many of those players say the money's just simply not enough. Um, and, and so that's one of the reasons why it's so important for some sort of um, payment to be made to these players, either under a settlement or if this case continues without a settlement. Many of these players just simply say whatever money they're receiving is not covering their medical bills. Last question on this NFL topic. You know, people – talk about the oversaturation in media and, oh, I'd love to see NFL football on five days a week or even seven days a week. To me, one of the big red flags for the NFL happened at the beginning of the NFL playoffs this past season. Three of the four first-round NFL games did not sell out. That is unheard of, never used to happen. Is that a red flag? Is that people saying, you know what, uh, I've had my fill of NFL, or is it just people saying, you know, I'd rather watch on TV instead of go to the venue? I'm so happy you brought this up. I, I wrote an article on Forbes.com. I think it was my first article of this year, and it focused on this disparity between in-stadium experience and the at-home TV experience. And I think the latter part of your question is really where we find the answer. 
I think the at-home experience is dominating the in-stadium experience. And I think that teams have a very, very important obligation to do whatever they can to enhance that in-stadium experience. And many of them are, including my hometown Miami Dolphins. And I've looked at some of the different things that they are doing. I'm not so concerned about the product that's on the field. And we can look at TV numbers and see that, you know, the NFL is doing very, very well, and the networks are very happy. The issue being that fans are, are just saying, I'd rather sit at home in front of my 50- or 60-inch HD TV in whatever I want to wear, not worrying about the climate, etc. Um, and, and ticket prices are probably too high as well. So if you, can, if you think about the cost of getting a season ticket or even a ticket in the playoffs and decide, well, what if I just appropriated that to a really nice TV? What would you prefer? And I think many consumers are saying, I'd rather just sit at home in my comfort and watch in, in, with a great product. And now especially, we're going from HD TV to 4K. Um, the, the, the NFL and the, and the teams have a big problem on their hands. What can they do to drive interest among the general fan to go to the game itself? Uh, and I, I'm not sure that that TV doesn't win in this case. So this is such an interesting dilemma for the major sports leagues because on one hand, you're getting record amounts of money for your TV deals. We've seen that with all of the leagues. Heck, even Major League Soccer tripled their TV deal and their ratings weren't tremendous. And then on the other hand, you have people that you want to come to the venues. I've been saying for years on Sports Business Radio, I think we will eventually get to the day where the venues will become smaller. Only the corporations and the wealthy will be able to attend live sporting events, and everyone else is going to watch in the comfort of their home on their HDTV. Do you share that vision, or can you see that happening? I see it. I, you know, I, I've been to a NASCAR race in the recent past, and I saw that a lot of the individuals in attendance were corporate sponsors and individuals that were invited specifically by the corporate sponsors. I think there there are particular sports that still have an advantage of the live in-person experience. I was recently at a UFC fight in Dallas, Texas, and I've admittedly I I had only watched a UFC event one time on TV and it just didn't do it for me but being there in person I was blown away um and I think you know there are particular sports that can defeat this whole uh expansion of what has been allowed based on the advancement of technology and television. I'm not sure that the NFL is one of them. You just have a great view uh, on, a, on a big HD TV and, and the enjoyment of not having to sit in traffic, of not having to pay for parking, of not having to deal with um, ridiculous uh, concession prices. <laughs> I, I, something needs to be done. And, and I'm not sure that the NFL and the teams are amenable to, to making the changes that are, that are required. Well, and that's the big question, and I get this question all the time. Will teams ever lower ticket prices? You're making so much money from TV deals. You're making so much money from concessions and merchandise and parking. Will you lower the ticket price to try and get the fan in the door? It's almost like when you're in Vegas and you know they're going to copy on a bunch of stuff at the casino because they want you at the tables gambling. Are sports teams going to say, you know what, we're going to lower ticket prices to get the fans in the door so we can get the money for everything else? Do you see that happening? 
Well, the difference between Vegas and an NFL game is that Vegas earns the majority of its money based on you sitting at the tables and losing your money. And that's why they'll provide you the free buffet. They'll provide you the free hotel room. The NFL doesn't have that same issue, right? Because even though they're making decent money off of concessions, um, they don't really, and, and they make some money off of parking, and they make some money off of tickets. As you mentioned, the, the key revenue generator is the TV deal. So by bringing the individual into the game, it doesn't necessarily really change the bottom line. Um, I think instead you keep the price as is because perception matters a lot to the NFL as well. I think it sort of cheapens the game if, you, if you're providing tickets at a discount. Um, so I don't, I don't see the teams really changing uh, or changing the model that they currently have with regards to ticket pricing. Um, just And the main reason is because the majority of their wealth comes from TV. It's not coming from the ancillary items that are a part of going to a going to a game. It's very different from Vegas. No, I agree, and I was just making that you know to try and uh, I guess make some kind of correlation. But you know what, most people don't realize, Darren, is that an NFL owner can pay his team payroll and then some just with the TV money. Forget about ticket sales. Right. Forget about merchandise, parking. Any other revenue stream, if you just had the TV money and nothing else, you can pay the players on your team. So you look at everything else as gravy, and that's where Mark Cuban's comments coming full circle on this, are they getting hoggy? And I think eventually you're going to have to start to do some things, not just as an NFL owner, as a Major League Baseball owner, NBA, NHL, and any other league, to get fans incentivized to get off the couch from watching on HDTV. HDTV to come to the venue and especially you know the NFL has such a huge TV deal we'll, we'll see it's going to be interesting to watch I agree with you you know you don't want to devalue or cheapen your your product or your ticket but I think there's got to be some way to get fans into the venue by making it more affordable to them because that's for most people I don't know about you but people I talk to number one concern with them with coming to a sporting event in person is cost sure and and truthfully, what every owner should be saying to himself before he goes to sleep at night is, God bless the salary cap. Yeah. Because, you know, at, at the end of the day, they're not going to lose money. The TV revenue will be there. there. There's a restriction on the amount of money that their players can receive. It's It's the most secure investment that you can have. Well, and the other thing that I've said, too... You know, whoever long ago negotiated on behalf of the players against the owners may have done the worst job in the history of sports. How NFL players do not have guaranteed multi-year contracts like they have in the NBA when you're playing the most barbaric sport with the shortest career span is beyond me. I mean, if you get hurt, they can wave goodbye to you and say, see you later. If you're A-Rod or Sean Kemp, you know, you can have that guaranteed contract that you're going to get. You may not even be playing. So it's really interesting that the NFL finds itself the players in the predicament that they do. All right, Darren Heitner, he's the author of the new book, How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know. Darren, how can people find your book? It's available on Amazon.com. All you need to do is type in the name of the book. You can type in my name, uh, easily accessible. You can also go to the American Bar Association website, 
uh, and it's available within their pages as well. Uh, last, if, if, if you still need another option, you can go to www.sportslawbook.com. And then also you can follow Darren on Twitter. He's a great follow, at Darren Heitner. That's H-E-I-T-N-E-R. Darren, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, Let's do this again soon. Thank you, Brian. Great chat. Good chat with you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. Make me Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. We are back and a heartfelt thank you for listening to Sports Business Radio for the last 10 years. We really appreciate your loyal listenership. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at SB Radio. You can find our website at sportsbusinessradio.com. It's been a tremendous ride over the last 10 years. If you want to hear some of our best interviews, just go to the interview section at sportsbusinessradio.com. A reminder, the Sports PR Summit presented by Pistano is coming up on May 22nd at the MLB Fan Cave in New York City. If you are a senior PR executive, this is an event that you don't want to miss. The Fan Cave is a great venue, and then we're going to have league execs. We're going to have senior PR execs from brands. We'll have some great panel discussions, great networking, some Terrific people from the media on hand. Jeremy Schapp, who's a tremendous reporter from ESPN. John Wartime, the executive editor of Sports Illustrated. Mary Byrne, who is USA Today's Sports' managing editor. And ESPN CNN columnist and broadcaster LZ Granderson. Just some of the people that will be on hand for the full-day event. There's lunch. There's a post-event cocktail reception. Go to sportsprsummit.com if you want to learn more about the Sports PR Summit presented by Pistano. Thank you to our guest this week. It was fun to take a trip down memory lane with my co-founder of Sports Business Radio, Keith Foreman, Rand Gatlin from Yahoo Sports, and Darren Heitner from Forbes.com and author of the terrific new book that we discussed. It wouldn't be complete without a big thank you to our show staff who has made our show what it's been the last 10 years. Brian Griggs, our executive producer, Josh Blank, Doug Zanger. I'd also be remiss if I didn't thank Bobby Corser, who was our original producer of Sports Business Radio and still a good friend of the show, and Nathan Roach, who was also a contributor to Sports Business Radio over the last 10 years. It's been a great ride. We look forward to many more years to come. 
And a podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just click on the iTunes icon on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com to have our show podcast downloaded to your iTunes. And we'd appreciate it if you post a review. You can also find us on some terrific apps, the Swell app, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, just some of the places that you can find our show on demand. Obviously, go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I am on Twitter at SB Radio, and you can keep up with breaking news on the sports business landscape with us there. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. I'm waking up to ash and dust. I wipe my brow and I sweat my rust. I'm breathing in the chemicals. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples, tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter, so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215.